Do you want victory? You can have it in Christ Jesus. Time once again for Abiding in Christ with Jim Wood. You have to step back, evaluate the various positions in light of Scripture, and then re-engage with a godly perspective. Pastor Wood is the founder of Wears Valley Ranch, a Christian home and school for kids from crisis family situations. Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. You can contact the program by calling 866-41-ABIDE or by visiting us on the web at wvr.org. And now, without further delay, here's your host, Jim Wood. Please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. There is a verse at the end of 1 John, or near the end of 1 John, that is one of the favorites of evangelical people. In 1 John 5, verse 13, we read this. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now please hear that. He says, I've written these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. That is a favorite verse for people when they're doing evangelism and that sort of thing uh, because they want people to know that it's possible to know. Okay? But in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 and in chapter 4, we find some very important things that help us understand when it says these things have been written so that you may know. You're supposed to know those things. Okay? To that end, let me introduce 1 John, as I shared with the mentors the other evening, with a story that I got from my eldest brother and my middle brother. My eldest brother was a surgeon of international renown, and for a number of years he taught at Harvard Medical School and um, worked at the hospital in Boston that was rated the top hospital in the U.S. almost every year, a Massachusetts General Hospital. Now, Mass General Hospital is a wonderful place. I've had surgery there, so I can vouch for the fact that they're good people doing good medicine. However, when I was there, I didn't stay in Phillips House. Phillips House is an old wing of the hospital that is where you get very expensive and less intensive care. Or at least when, when I was aware of it, there was not an intensive care section of Phillips House. Intensive care was over in another part of the hospital, the more modern part of the hospital. But this section had rooms that overlooked the Charles River, and you could see the young collegiate rowers out there uh, going by on, on the river, and MIT was just right across the way. And it's beautiful views, it's beautiful rooms, and it's the sort of place you go maybe to recuperate from a surgery. Uh, once things have calmed down, you just need a little more time in the hospital, but you don't need a lot of intensive nursing care. Most of the people who are there are either extremely wealthy 
or extremely famous or both. And so it's just, you know, it's a special place. But because there's not a lot of intensive nursing needed, um, most of the people there, uh, because they're wealthy and just wanting to have some nice quiet time of recovery in the hospital, they hire private duty nurses. That is to say, they pay extra to have a nurse who will just sit in their room with them and get them whatever they want. I'd like some ice chips, please. Okay? Or uh, I'd like to turn over. And instead of having to ring for a nurse, you have one right there. Isn't that nice? And you can afford that sort of thing if you can afford to stay in Philip's house. Well, one morning, as a doctor was taking his medical students on what is called grand rounds, where you go from room to room and you talk with the students about the individual cases. This person has this. What would you suggest? What do you think we did? You know, what sort of surgery? What would you recommend now? That's how they learn. One particular morning, a doctor was making grand rounds. He came into a room, and it was early. This typically happens around dawn is when they do grand rounds. It's early, early, early in the morning. And um, when they walked into the room, the patient was dead. You could look and see that the patient was dead. It was obvious. I've been around people who were obviously dead. And... Uh, I'm including people who died in their bed. It's, I'm not talking about a gruesome accident. I'm talking about someone who has expired. That means they've breathed their last. They're no longer breathing. Typically, there's a difference in coloration. And uh, if, if they've been dead long enough, a process sets in called rigor mortis, which is just the, the stiffness of death. And um, that's one of the ways that uh, the police and uh, forensic experts can try and pinpoint the time of death is by seeing how much change has happened after the person died. That gives them some idea of when they died. So this fellow was lying there and he, you can tell just by looking, is dead. But there's no sheet up over his face, which is a nice polite thing that is done to give the dead a little privacy. Um, Instead, he's just lying there. And the nurse is seated in the chair next to the head of the bed, and she's knitting. And so the doctor said to the nurse, um, how's the patient? Oh, he's doing better. Thank you. And so he went to the foot of the bed, and he took the clipboard, and he looked at the clipboard, and he read the information. And according to what she had written down on the clipboard, this man was still alive just within the last hour, okay? She had recorded his blood pressure and his respiration and all of that. But you could look at him and tell, no, he's been gone more than an hour. So the doctor pulled the sheet up and uncovered the man's feet. It's okay to do this because the person's dead, okay? took a foot and lifted up, just lifted the man up by his toes, and the body was so stiff that it just came up like this, and the doctor let go, and the legs went back down, and the nurse burst into tears. 
She said, he'd been having such a hard time, I didn't want to disturb him to take his vital signs. And so I just made things up and wrote them down. She didn't kill that man. She just didn't want to disturb him when it turns out he was already dead. Don't take that as indicative of the care you'd get at Mass General Hospital. But do understand that the reason my brother told that story is because it illustrates what happens with a lot of churches and Christian organizations and family relations where somebody is spiritually dead but no one wants to disturb them. First John tells us at the end, I've written these things so that you can know that you have eternal life. But if you read 1 John, you find out that it's a list of vital signs. It's a list of tests. Let me just tell you, if a person doesn't have a pulse, that means something is seriously wrong. You understand? You got to have a pulse, you got to have breath, and you need to have brain waves. There are signs of life that we look for in people. And if those evidences are not there, then we've got a problem. Now, sometimes people don't show a lot of signs of life, and, and we worry about them. But you need to know how to check, okay? You need to know how to check and see if there's life. And that's what we're going to be looking for as we go through 1 John. Look, for example, just, this is just looking ahead here. In chapter 2, verse 3. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. This is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. That's one of the vital signs. If you don't do what God says, then don't kid yourself into thinking that you know him. Verse 5, the very end of verse 5. This is how we know we are in him. Here comes verse 6. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. That is, just as Jesus walked. In other words, if you aren't becoming like Jesus, then it raises real questions about whether or not he's living in you. So all through this letter, John is going to be giving us a series of things that we can look for. If this is true, you're in Christ and you have eternal life. If this is not true, then it raises real questions. You better check. You better make sure that you're really trusting Jesus. Because to trust Jesus transforms you. God doesn't just give you an academic kind of faith where you believe it's true, but nothing changes. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Satan has doubts about the existence of God? Book of James says, you say you believe in God? Well, you do well. 
even the demons believe and tremble. The demons believe that there is a God. Yeah, but what about Jesus? Well, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that Satan wonders whether or not Jesus is the Messiah? No, he knows Jesus is the Messiah. Does he believe in the miracles? Yeah, he saw them. Well, does he believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for the sins of all who would trust in him? Of course he knows that. He was there. Jesus said, this is Satan's hour. Well, does he believe that Jesus rose again from the dead? Absolutely. Satan's doctrine would line up very well with a test on orthodoxy. He knows the Bible's true. He knows God is real. He knows Jesus is God incarnate. He knows that Jesus was born of a virgin. He knows that Jesus lived a sinless life because he tried hard to get him to sin. He knows that Jesus died on the cross and rose again and ascended to the Father and is coming again. In fact, the Bible says Satan knows his time is short. It is not enough to know these things and to know that they're true. When the Bible talks about belief in Jesus, it's talking not about just intellectual assent to propositional truth. It's talking about a relationship of trust. Are you trusting in Jesus, or are you still thinking you can make it if you just try a little harder? In 1 John chapter 1, we read this. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed, and we have seen it, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say, we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, 
Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. This is how we know that we know him if we keep his commands. The one who says, I've come to know him, and yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Just a couple of quick points further introducing this letter. First of all, John writes and he says, we are telling you about that which we know firsthand. We're not just passing on to you something we've heard. John says, we're writing to you having been firsthand witnesses of God's revelation of himself in Jesus Christ. That's the introductory section there. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. We are sharing these things with you so that you also may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Please get this. It's not just about building up a membership of people around the world who believe these things. It is building up a fellowship, a relationship of people who know and love each other because we know and love the Lord. And as he'll go on to say in this letter, we love him because he first loved us. So there's going to be a tremendous emphasis on love all through this letter and on fellowship all through this letter, but it is rooted in the truth of God's love for us. And if we love him in response to his love, it utterly changes the way that we live. We can't just keep on doing the stuff we were doing before. We won't because of love, not because we're trying to earn our salvation, not because we're thinking, oh, okay, so if I want to go to heaven, I've got to change these things. No, if you want to go to heaven, you need to get saved. Well, how do I get saved? By recognizing your sin and crying out to the Savior. Realizing, I have completely blown it and I can't clean up this mess. I had a dear friend who went to be with the Lord earlier this year. And one of my amusing memories of him is when he took my wife and me out to eat when we were first moving to Atlanta. This is an enormously successful businessman. Very successful, very dignified, very well-dressed, top-of-the-line Mercedes-Benz. And so we ride in his car to a lovely steakhouse where we're going to enjoy a meal together, and there's a salad bar, and we go to the salad bar 
and we get our food and we come back and he notices that he has gotten some ranch dressing on himself. And he begins trying to clean it up. Unfortunately, he had gotten some ranch dressing on his napkin. And so the more he tries to clean himself, the more he is spreading ranch dressing all over his beautiful suit. And I mean, it's hilarious because like he's going for this part, dragging ranch dressing across here, okay? And I mean, we don't know this man very well. We're just getting to know him. We're very impressed. He's, he's a, a major player, okay? But, um, but it's like, do you say something? You say, oh, excuse me, uh, don't do that anymore. Stop trying to clean yourself up. Because the more he tried to clean himself up, the more he made a mess. A lot of people try and clean themselves up thinking, if I can just do better, I can go to heaven. If I can just manage my sin problem, I can go to heaven. If I will just follow these rules, I can go to heaven. Hear the word of God. No one will be justified in God's sight by keeping the law. Well, shall we continue in sin then that grace may abound? God forbid! Don't you know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You're to leave that way of life behind, but the solution is in Christ. It's not you cleaning yourself up. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. There's going to be more to this as we go through this study. But since we got to conclude here today, let me just ask you, what do you do if you realize there is no evidence that I'm in Christ? I don't seem to have a pulse. I'm not breathing. What do you do? Ask him to save you. Ask him to save you. Don't try and save yourself. You can't save yourself. Ask him to save you. And I'll, I, I've got wonderful news for you. He'll do it. He's not going to say, well, I'll think about it. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. But you're not going to get saved if you won't admit you're lost. If you are claiming that you're without sin, that's what it says here. If you say, well, you know, I, I don't have a sin problem. I didn't do anything. I don't think there's anything really wrong with what I... Well, you're lost. You're spiritually dead. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's his promise. So if you're still trying to justify yourself, you need to get saved. But the way to get saved is to realize, I need a Savior. Lord, you're my only hope. I don't have a plan B. I don't have any righteousness I can bring to you and say, okay, I know I messed up over here, but, but I did this. Is that good? No, you just come and you say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he will save you. He is mighty to save. Jesus came to save sinners. Hallelujah. There's an old song. It says, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him 
I will arise and go to Jesus. Jesus will take me in his arms, in the arms of Christ my Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. That's what I want for you, to find rest in him, rest in his arms, rest in his love. And that, and that only, is the basis of our fellowship with one another. You've been listening to Abiding in Christ. If you have questions that you'd like for us to tackle on the program or comments that you want to make, I want to invite our listeners to call 866-41-ABIDE. That's our toll-free number, 866-41-ABIDE. Or contact us on the web at wvr.org.